Welcome to the podcast, today's Voices of Conservation Science from beautiful Bozeman, Montana. And uh, today, again, we are here in studio Zoom. We are social distancing like good people because of the coronavirus global pandemic. And I'm Chris Guy. I'm your host for today's podcast. This podcast focuses on people doing science that's then used to conserve natural resources. Today, I'm here with Zach McGuire, and he is a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. Zach, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Good. And your social distancing, I see, uh, you know, through the Zoom, we have our cameras on. I don't see anybody around you, so that's a good job. <laughs> well, I live alone, so where it works. <laughs> that's good. Um, so, Zach, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I'm 31 years old, originally from just north of Boston, Massachusetts, um, born and raised, spent about 18 years there, spent some time in Louisiana, and then finally made the move to Montana, where I uh, became a wilderness guide up in the Flathead, mostly. We did a few trips in Yellowstone as well, but mostly the Bob Marshall Wilderness Complex, so including like the scapegoat and... Um, the sun and everything, and then decided to go back to school and get my undergraduate degree here at MSU and just kept rolling with it as education kind of seemed to be important to me when I uh, finally sat into my first class. Yeah, so you went from uh, from Boston to uh, uh, or you said Massachusetts. I think you said north of Boston or something like that, and uh, and then you went to Louisiana and then to Montana. That's quite a quite a uh, trajectory of uh, different locations, if you will. A um, little bit about Louisiana. I really like Louisiana. I like New Orleans. I like that whole area. Um, was that a good good experience for you down there? I love Louisiana. Um, so from a perspective of being in freshwater, uh, ecology now going down to Homa and going fishing, at least it was, I mean, it was saltwater, it was marine fisheries, but, um, I had never really experienced that slice of fisheries. They grew up, you know, bass and hoagies and, you know, stripers, just like your normal, uh, Northeast, uh, fisheries, but that's a, I mean, beyond just um, the social aspect and the Cajun flavors and the jambalaya capital of the world, and, yeah. which I do appreciate all those seasonings, but um, the total different ecological landscape down there. Um, I had never gone like paddling in a swamp. I always figured swamps were essentially like trash areas. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then yeah. realizing that, I mean, it was just full of wildlife. Yeah. And I guess uh, the birding, is something that I kind of got into once I got down there as well. That's like my introduction to um, hunting waterfowl and just hunting songbirds with binoculars. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, no, I love that area. I haven't done much in the swamp or anything, but we've had several meetings down in New Orleans and I've spent a little extra awesome. time there. And it's just, man, I just, you can walk around the evening and it's warm and muggy and there's just great food and entertainment. And I don't know, I just, that, for some reason that place just it, 
it, it, it attracts me. It makes me feel good. So anyway, and then you moved to Montana. And so how did you pick Montana from Louisiana? Was, was it, was it just, Hey, I'm going to throw a dart at a map and take off or was there some, some reason? So when I was uh, 22 years old, um, I went to a rehabilitation center in Montana in Kalispell for um, a substance abuse problem. Mm -hmm. And I went and it was an outdoors based kind of place. And um, they took you about a month backpacking in the woods. And then from there, I moved to Louisiana and from the second I hit soil down in Louisiana, um, I started delving into getting my wilderness first responder and different qualifications or to become a wilderness guide back in Montana. So I, I had my sights set on Montana from day one yeah. of st stepping in Montana. So, <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, so what compelled you to pursue a career in conservation? I get, you know, you kind of gave us a little a uh, little teaser there of some some work you did in the Bob Marshall but I'm wondering is it is there anything you know before that time that got you interested in conservation like when you were back in Massachusetts were there things that you did that you know kind of set the foundation if you will for your interest in conservation be quite honest not really um a pretty um stereotypical um, you know, middle-class upbringing and high school concerned about sports and girls and college wasn't really on, you know, my mental radar, um, obviously it was to be expected to go. And then during high school, I kind of went down uh, a few rabbit holes with drugs and alcohol. So that kind of spaced me out to the point where, um, when I finally came to, I was in the wilderness of Montana, essentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was withdrawing up to the point of like first week in a back with a backpack on waking up in a tent and uh, it just struck me. Yeah. Like this was the most important or it seemed to be um, of utmost importance, at least to a psychic necessity almost mm -hmm. not just, Oh, this would be interesting. It was more of like a need to, to dive into conservation. What about that? You know, you, you said you were camping, woke up in a tent. Were there other things about that experience that got you interested or what was most in instrumental at that time that you spent there? Instrumental towards, uh, yeah, like a career in career in conservation. conservation. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so part of my, I guess it wasn't just then it was more looking back and I started, uh, once I was in Louisiana, I started researching everything there is to know about, uh, Bob Marshall himself. Um, and then I read, um, his, um, he had a short book on his time up in the Brooks range in Alaska and about the native people that he hung out with there and climbing some unmarked peaks. And then he had his, um, Ode to the wilderness, um, paper and, I didn't really realize what's been happening in the American like uh, ecological landscape since, you know, Leopold and like the inception of wildlife management and all that. And I was just 
I don't know. That's when I just kept researching everything I could about, I guess, the history of it all, because I had no background, really. I mean, it's not a high school course. Um, I just felt that like your average person, if they had known what I knew or if they had uh, read what I read, that they'd be just as um, excited about conservation. And in order to get that out there to a wider base, I feel like getting into a career in it, I could make a difference and at least reaching more people because like at the heart of it, like everybody I'm sure feels the same way I do just as a human. I mean, we interact on the landscape and that piece seems to be missing at least in the current day and age. Yeah. So you touched on a few things, uh, kind of what I'm guessing were some hurdles that you personally faced and, and how did you overcome them to get where you are today? I mean, you know, just so the audience knows is that you're and you're a master student, as I alluded to, in at Montana State University. And that it's highly competitive to get into Montana State University. And so how did you get through these hurdles to get to this point? All right. Well, uh, I guess I'm a uh, non-traditional undergraduate. Um, I came back as a 27-year-old uh, 28 year old, 27 and a half. Um, and I had about a year's worth of credits from university of Massachusetts. That was also in environmental science, but I didn't pay much attention to that. Um, I guess previous to coming to college, obviously I, I spoke before of my substance abuse problems that, you know, from 16 to 23, basically, um, I struggled with some, you know, hard drug abuse and just getting through that and getting my sanity back was step one. Um, and that's, I guess, difficult, but it was, there was only a few options. It was like, you know, keep going on to the bitter end. Um, and, you know, just be a disappointment and not live much of a life or just end your life essentially, uh, through, you know, your own means basically, or, you know, buckle your belt and figure out like what I need to actually stay sober and what I'm passionate about and get after it. So like sobriety for me isn't, it isn't just about waking up every morning and I'm sober and that's good enough. I woke up every morning and it was, I'm sober and what can I do to improve my life? I don't know. It was a a psychic change of sorts. Um, Like I had to be working towards something or else, you know, what else is there? Mm-hmm. And then coming back as an undergraduate, uh, my first class um, back in undergraduate was with Lindsay Albertson. It was a uh, freshwater ecology. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted to do. So I spent way too much time in the library. <laughs> and I, I mean, I sat next to a lot of younger students mm-hmm. that were my um, in my cohort and saw how they were operating and it seemed like I was putting in way too much effort and I was struggling a little bit too much. Um, and grades mattered a little bit too much to me because I thought I had to prove something to myself, to the university, um, all these kinds of like ego problems of like, I got to be somebody. Um, and then in studying way too much, I realized I, I truly do have a passion for uh, ecology in general. And so, um, my behavior is the same, 
but my motivations <laughs> had changed quite a bit. Yeah, I don't know if you can study too much, right? I mean, uh, I mean, I guess if it becomes a point where it's unhealthy in terms of you don't, you know, you're not having any other kind of life. But I mean, that just shows your passion and makes you a better ecologist, scientist. I mean, there's a lot of information out there and to try and <clears throat> wrap your head around all that, I think, is is a good thing. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems to have paid off from an undergraduate to now working with Lindsay on your master's degree. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I do feel incredibly thankful for, for everybody who works at Montana State. I mean, obviously, I, I worked very hard to get where I am today, but the opportunities were there for me. Um, mm -hmm. If I was willing and if I was willing to, you know, walk 10 steps, everybody else's willing to walk half those towards me on the, on the onset of it. So, yeah, I mean, I had great mentors as well. I don't know if, you know, Ben Tumalo, but uh, mm -hmm. I did some undergraduate research with him and Lindsay and it was a unbelievable experience really understanding how graduate research is done from helping with him, with his studies and his field work to um, learning how to write a paper, yeah. a scientific paper and ultimately getting published. It was just yeah, I, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for these people. There's no doubt about that. I'm here with Zach McGuire, and he is a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. And Zach, this is where we switch gears and we start uh, talking about your research. So can you tell me a little bit about what your research is on? Sure. So I'm going to be investigating uh, how macroinvertebrate and fish populations on the Madison um, have changed throughout time and how tributaries could be providing uh, ideal habitat conditions or um, like colder, well-oxygenated uh, inputs to the mainstem Madison River and how that might be affecting both the macroinvertebrate populations in terms of uh, community richness metrics and also in terms of um, how good of a prey base we have for uh, brown and rainbow trout on the Madison. And so is there concern about these tributaries? If, is, is, why are they so important to the, the Madison River? So, I mean, tributaries are important to most rivers in general, but the Madison um, itself um, has struggled with land use changes over the past you know, 150 years, and currently a lot of the tributaries to the Madison have been degraded due to those land use changes, and there has been um, significant sediment inputs from uh, agricultural uh, imp impacts, and their headwaters of the tributaries are in very good shape as we have on the east coming out of the uh, Madison's and the gravelies, I'm pretty sure, um, on the west. So the tributaries are intact and have good riparian cover, but as they come into the uh, Madison Valley, um, a lot of their character has been degraded. So we think that um, macroinvertebrate populations have taken a bit of a hit due to these land use changes and have a compounding impact on uh, fish as mm -hmm. yeah. And so predators. I know um, 
Dr. Albertson had some student or had a student maybe working on salmon flies. I don't know if she's had more than one. Is that a component? Do you think there's a, there's, there's a, there's a change in salmon flies in the, in the Madison river. And is that part of what you're going to be looking at? Will that be part of it? Yes. So Heidi Anderson, uh, Lindsay's previous master's student who looked at salmon fly populations found that temperature was the biggest driver or the driver that was most highly correlated to salmon fly abundance and body size on the Madison. And we think that salmon flies just as a singular uh, genus species provide a very good um, unit of prey for uh, uh, trout populations of the Madison, but that's just one singular genus in a very large community of macroinvertebrates. So if we see this um, downcline in population and body size with um, one of our larger, more, uh, I guess, gregarious <laughs> macroinvertebrates, then it could be happening in other families, genus, species of macroinvertebrates. So I, yeah, I, as... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I oh, I mean, it's just like a, the, prey, the prey base for... Madison, you know, blue ribbon trout are all macroinvertebrates for the most part. So, yeah. And, and I just, the reason I mentioned those salmon flies is, you know, they're, and you mentioned the importance of the trout fishery in um, the Madison river and its impact on local economies. I mean, it's a huge um, driver for, especially the, like the town of NS, even Bozeman. And, um, and, and, you know, people go to fish just during the salmon fly hatch. You know, they'll, they'll, they will schedule their vacations around, you know, like the salmon fly hatch. And then there's the Mother's Day hatch too. So these, these macroinvertebrates are feeding the fish, but they're also these iconic periods of when people go and it's centered around the macroinvertebrates, which is pretty darn cool. You know, you always hear that, you know, macroinvertebrates aren't the charismatic megafauna of, you know, Southwest Montana, but in a way they are, they're just as important as, you know, some of these other species. They might not be as big, but they certainly do in terms of local economy, help drive that economy. And like you were saying, I mean, if something happens to the macroinvertebrates, I think you were saying this, something, if something happens to the macroinvertebrates and that's going to trickle up, if you will, to the, the, to the fish. Yeah. So there are many different like factors that are going into the populations of trout um, and their size structures and everything on the Madison and macroinvertebrates is just one piece. Um, the amount of fishermen period is another piece. The amount of warming, um, the two dams that are on the Madison um, and their timing of flows and everything. I mean, there's just so many pieces and the macroinvertebrate link seems to be um, at least the macroinvertebrate link as a prey base, not just as an ecological indicator of integrity, hasn't been researched as much on the Madison. Mm -hmm. So that's why I would like to get into it. Um, and also ultimately getting a, um, uh, just like investigating diets of trout on the Madison would be great, but it is difficult to propose such research without having um, underlying uh, research you've already done saying that 
this could be a serious link. Mm -hmm. So in order to get to that spot, um, I need to do this research first. Um, so what would be, you know, the most important thing you could find in your research? If you had this crystal ball and you could look into the future, what, what would that be? I know you're early on in your, in your master's degree. Um, I guess that there isn't, I mean, it would be best if I found nothing, um, that there aren't any significant changes in macroinvertebrate assemblages or abundances and that trout are doing really well and their prey base is stable and has been for years and are, um, flows coming out of both Hebgen and Madison powerhouse just north of Ennis are dialed into your natural flow regime and all is well. It's just, there's so many different, it's so it's such a dynamic system. Rivers are so dynamic that you mess with one thing and you're going to have so many um, issues that you didn't even realize going into it. Even if you thought about it uh, deeply, things will pop up that you couldn't even have imagined um, as a consequence to say changing your CFS out of MPH by 150 mm -hmm. or, you know, it just changing it by one degree. So if we on average mean August temperatures go up another degree, um, serious issues for just salmon fly, just one taxa, they're going to no longer be present. Huh. I mean, above 18 degrees C and salmon flies will no longer be able to have our synchronous emergent states or anything. Hmm. And that just doesn't seem like very much, right? <clears throat> One degree C. No. Yeah. I mean, and when you look at um, the trout as well, um, they're cold water species for the most part. Um, and that's why we have these hoot owl restrictions mm -hmm. on the lower part of the Madison River, um, because there's serious die-offs. Physiologically, trout can't handle these higher temperatures that are happening and it's not necessarily due to the dams or anything like that. There's a lot, there's so many different factors, but at the end of the day, temperature plays a huge role in your ability to go fishing for these trout. Because firstly, we want our resource to be happy and whole. And then we want our public base that uses the research resource to be happy and whole. So yeah, these, it's going to affect, it's going to affect both these things, rising yeah. temperatures in the coming years. Yeah. Well, that's very interesting. Um, now, the last question here is kind of a softball question. And what is your favorite animal, plant, or both? Oh, geez. Yeah. I mean, I have them. It just seems there's so many to choose from. <laughs> but um, if we're going to look at mammals, definitely a leopard seal. And then, um, I guess my love currently would be hydrocycid caddisflies. I did my undergraduate research on hydrocycids. And, and, um, and just to be transparent here, that's what your advisor works on too, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, so you don't, oh, so you don't, I'm not like, you, you know, I'm not say. trying to kiss anything. I'm not kissing anything here. <laughs> I'm just well, they're, they're, they're wonderful. They're wonderful. They, what, from their what, habitat what modification them, what point so of wonderful? view. What makes them so wonderful? They're not just crawling around the bottom of our substrate on rivers, just waiting to get eaten. <laughs> They're essentially building little silk structures in the flow to farm like particulate organic matter. Um, and they build these monstrous retreats and they tie together sediment 
um, and they provide, they facilitate other species from like a, like a micro refugia point of view. Um, and they're dynamic. So if one hydrocycid tries to butt in on the territory of another hydrocycid, and there's video evidence of this, um, they get territorial, <laughs> just rearing back and smashing each other. Um, so yeah, insects get a bad rap from not being charismatic, but these guys are extremely charismatic. Mm -hmm. There's just no doubt about it. Nice. And I mean, their lineage from an, um, an evolutionary standpoint, um, of being closely related to butterflies and moths as well. They're basically the counterpart to lepidopterans, but underwater with the cool ability that is almost uh, spider-like, except they're not catching live prey in their nets. They're just catching um, organic matter. So that, if you, that's just really cool. Okay. You, you've convinced me that they're, they're very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the leopard seal. What's up with the yeah. leopard seal? What is up with the leopard seal? <laughs> um, okay, so as a young man, not a young man, eight years old, there is a Disney movie called The Pebble and the Penguin. And obviously penguins were the protagonist here. Mm -hmm. For the most part, there was an antagonistic penguin as well who was trying to you know, ruin the hero's journey, essentially. But... The big bad wolf in this story were leopard seals. Mm -hmm. And the way they were depicted from a uh, cartoon point of view, I thought was really cool as a young boy. So I went and got, um, in like, uh, like ecology encyclopedias of animals, essentially, and started looking into leopard seals and realized how much of like, they're monsters. They're, they're predators. They're, They'll eat almost anything. And there was this one picture of uh, just open mod leopard seal going after a penguin. And I picked the side of the leopard seal <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. And it stayed with me. Yeah. Like this isn't across all predator prey relationships, but in this singular uh, instance, they're super cool. All right, Zach, it's been uh, wonderful visiting uh, with you today. And thank you for sharing your life with us and taking time to chat with me today. I wish you the best in your studies at Montana State University and your research on macroinvertebrates and trout in the Madison River. Thanks for listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science. And please spread the word about this podcast.